Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We talk about Formula One's plans for noisy cut price engines and look ahead to the Chinese Grand Prix. fallout from Sebastian Vettel's Australian Grand Prix victory still echoing around the Formula One world, the big news this week is the plan to adopt a new high-noise, low-cost engine formula in 2021. What exactly this means is sure to be a big talking point in the build-up to this weekend's Chinese Grand Prix. My name is Ed Straw, the editor-in-chief of Autosport, and joining me in what can only be called a very high-powered edition of the Autosport podcast is Anthony Rowlinson, the editorial director of Autosport and F1 Racing, among others. Better known as Prof, given his resemblance to Le Professeur himself, Alan Prost, what I want to know is whether or not you had one of your run-ins with another of your lookalikes, Leo Sayer, in Australia. Disappointingly, he wasn't in Melbourne this year, and I have to I say that with a heavy heart because it's a moment of the year I always look forward to, which is a, a bit of a man hug with Leo in the paddock. Do you ever just sort of walk past a reflexive surface and think, there he is, and then realise no? No, what normally happens is I get about 55 text messages saying your dad's in the paddock and I have to run <laughs> down and, and stage it for the for the photographers. Have the annual photo. Yes. I'm yes. sure he enjoys spending uh, spending a few minutes. Well, we, we've become sort of slightly friendly because of it. But <laughs> happily, he sees the funny side. Normally, the story should be close friends rather than slightly friendly. But uh, Alan Prost doesn't think it's funny. 
No, he wouldn't. No, when I've sat with him and interviewed him, he stonewalls the gag. But Leo Sayer thinks it's very funny. <laughs> that says a lot about them, a lot about them. Also joining me is our European Editor-in-Chief and the man currently in the editor's hot seat at F1 Racing, Damien Smith. This is his first appearance on this incarnation of the Autosport podcast, although as this is his third stint in the orbit of Autosport, he knows his way round. You've been back a few months now, so how are you finding it? Yeah, it's um, it's good to be back. Lots of very familiar faces, a few new ones. Um, it's interesting in the last 10 years how Autosport's changed, the emphasis so heavily on the website now compared to the, the print magazine back in the, my last time here. Um, and of course, the website's come on so so strongly in the, in the time I've been gone. So um, very different time. Um, same problems, same interesting uh, uh, situations to deal with week in, week out. But generally, it's very good to be back. You mean challenges, don't you? Not problems. Challenges. Sorry, challenges. that's the modern way, isn't it? No, no, no. Yeah. Opportunities. <laughs> Opportunities. <laughs> that's the correct corporate term. Exactly. No such thing as a problem. <laughs> So getting back to the big news of the past few days, the FIA has revealed this intention to ditch the current 1.6-litre turbocharger V6 plus ERS package in favour of this low-cost and noisier engine. Anthony, there's still a lot of detail to be ironed out. So what exactly is the plan? Where does it go from here? What's the what's the substance of this statement? Uh, the short answer is I don't know. What, it, what, what I can say is that it's clearly a topic that's going to be something that, that runs and runs now. It's going to be one of the main technical questions that we're faced with because Ross Braun in Melbourne made a point of briefing us all saying that a new engine formula was on the cards for 2020 or 2021. Now we've got this this idea that engines need to be noisy, which is a great thing for us to hear in principle, but we just don't know where it, where it will go. I mean, if the manufacturers remain involved in Formula 1 as they are, they're going to want something that's road relevant, which means probably some kind of hybrid hybrid type engine whether it's a high rev screamer or not, I don't know. I mean, I, I actually think the current engines sound pretty good. And a lot of the criticism that was made of them two years ago, I think has gone away. If you, if you stand trackside, as you always do at races, they're good sounding engines. They don't burst your eardrums anymore, but it sounds like a proper racing engine now. Yeah, one of the interesting things at the weekend in Australia was, was obviously Jean Todd made a sort of sweeping comment about the public not, not accepting loud engine noises anymore. Quite how he knows that, I don't know. But um, he made that statement. Ross Braun in a typically frank and very straight press conference he gave, seemed to suggest that you know, a racing engine is should, should have some sort of noise to it and some sort of oral quality. There's some, there's some clashing of uh, opinion at the very top of our sport at the moment, I think, between, between the FIA and um, FOM, and also the control factor of who's going to write these rules, who's going to Im- implement them. That's all going to play out. And of course, these two are old, are old allies from the Ferrari days. So it's quite interesting, dynamic, to see how that's going to work out. But I, I agree with, um, with with Prof, actually, that the cars sound quite good at the moment. I mean, standing trackside at um, turn, turns 11 and 12 in Albert Park, you know, they, they don't burst your eardrums like they used to, but they do um, they do sound like racing cars. And I, I think they've got quite a, quite a good sound to them. Apart from the Honda, which sounds like it's going to explode on up changes. And that's not an exaggeration. It actually sounds like it's going to self-detonate when it's moving up the rev range. It does make you sort of yeah. nervous every time yeah. it goes. You think, oh, is this, is this hit again? You yeah. know? And as we said when we were there, if that was your own car, you'd be straight down to quick fit saying, please fix my broken car. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not nice. No. The noise is the interesting question. There's kind of the, the level of noise versus the quality of noise. I know, Damon, you wrote a column after the Australian Grand Prix that ran in Autosport when you said that the noise is the only ingredient missing from the old shock and awe F1. Now, I tend to agree that actually the the volume is secondary to the quality of the noise. I'm happy with them being a bit quieter, but a bit more textured. They're still impressive when you're there. So 
that maybe for me personally isn't that important, but the groundswell of opinion seems to be that you want that noise, that impressive smash you in the face, really grab you and say, this is seriously powerful. And I know some teams have said that's a great thing for you know, sponsors and partners just to sort of say this is something really impressive. So how how do those things get balanced up? It's tricky, isn't it? I mean, I think that quote came from... Um, the, I asked Alonso in a, in a press conference how these, these cars compared to the, the V10 era when he was winning world championships and are they comparable? And essentially the quote, the quote I used in the Autosport column was, yes, they do compare well, but he made, he brought up the point that the, the noise factor is the thing that's missing. I look back to when I was a kid growing up in the 80s and um, the shock and awe factor of Formula 1 was definitely there that as a little kid, it was quite scary. You had to kind of steel yourself when the F1 cars came out to get used to it again. And at the end of the race, you remember um, never being able to hear the commentator uh, on, the, on the tannoy. You'd hear the first lap, then they'd all come past. And then once the cars all got strung out, you wouldn't hear the commentator again until the uh, the slowing down lap. And uh, oh, he's still talking. Excellent, you know. So, um, but that was part of the sport then. Is it still part of the sport now? Um, I don't know. I mean, this is a very subjective subject. My son, for example, who's twelve, I started taking him to races in the V8 era, and those V8s were really harsh on the ears and not particularly nice sound. The V10s, I think, were even harsher actually. But um, the, the V8s, they 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 just hurt your ears. And um, they all sound the same, which is another key thing about these engines. Now, he actually prefers watching F1 cars because they don't hurt his ears anymore. And he can, he can even uh, talk to me while they're, while they're on the circuit. Um, now, you could argue that's a good thing or a bad thing. For him, it's a good thing. So I think different, different generation, there's a different generation growing up now with, with different requirements or expectations of what Formula 1 should be. Um, we shouldn't necessarily listen to the old guard on this. Without wishing to, for one moment, be the voice of the old guard, but... Um in Melbourne every year, they have a fly pass by an F-18 Hornet. Um, and the thing comes from nowhere. You don't see it coming. It flies past at several hundred miles an hour. And it um, makes you, uh, I won't use the actual phrase, but it, it stops you in your tracks. All you can do is is stand there petrified at this this machine that's flown overhead at incredible volume. And you're just sitting there with your fingers in your ears. And the thrill of it never goes away, or the distraction of it. Plenty of people in the paddock don't like it, but... That's completely gone from F1. That just use that by way of example, and I still think the visceral element that just that sheer um, that thunder of noise that you used to get with Formula One, it would just you'd, you'd have a headache when you when you spent the day at the at the track, uh, and you go away sort of slight ringing in your ears. You had to have earplugs with you at all times, and I miss it, and unashamedly I miss it, and I, and I think the sport's the poorer for it. I think that element of the, of a that event that's something that makes formula one motor racing stand out from anything else that you can actually go and see it as a live sport that the sound is important to it and i think yeah i think i do i do agree i do agree that it's it's missing but i'm not sure how important it is as i say for the next generation of fan whether they whether they need it or expect it i mean it's interesting talking to someone like nigel roebuck about this given that you know he's supposed to be one of the old guard but he's he's not bothered by the noise about the or the lack of noise because um, it's for him it's the quality of noise is is what matters and you which know, I'd he, agree with completely yeah and he he talks about you know particularly looking back at the um, the sixties seventies and even into the eighties when you had a, a mixture of different types of engine making different noises and you could always hear a V twelve Ferrari from a from a DFE and you could certainly hear a Matra V twelve compared to anything else on the grid in those days and and it was but it was the quality of noise and he didn't like the the V8s, he thought they were just a rather shrill, unpleasant unpleasant sound. So it's not about volume. I think the other point as well is that a lot of the criticism comes from people who 
never have the opportunity to actually see the cars live. And I do think that the television coverage doesn't do the noise that's there justice. I guess this is related to the point uh, Alex Wirtz recently talked about with the, the camera angles that are taken, not really showing the speed of Formula One cars. And I do also feel that the, the, the way the sound is conveyed, it does sound more weedy on television than it does if you're if you're standing trackside. So I think there's also a, a question there of how best to transmit that back to the, the vast majority of fans who are watching at home who at best might get to hear that noise a few times a year. When we were in Melbourne, um, we were invited to a screening of the new Bruce McLaren movie. Um, we're under embargo about it, actually, so we can't, we can't say much so, about so it. So you weren't invited to <laughs> No, we, we are allowed to say that we were there and that it's been made, I think. But um, there is, there's a lot of race footage in it, particularly of um, the Can-Am cars of the late 60s. And I think, if I'm right, they had seven litre V8s. And that stuff in a cinema uh, surround sound experience uh, was amazing. I mean, you just felt the thunder of these engines through, you know, through, through your body. Um, I can top that because I was once testing at Silverstone in my MX-5, just a little production road car, and I heard this rumbling behind me on a test day, and it was a McLaren Canham car. came up behind me, pulled in front of me, and then went into cops. And to be right behind... You know, that thing blasting full pelt in the, in the face was absolutely unbelievable. But to me, that's absolutely what the sport's about. And the cars have to be um, big, fast, thrilling, visceral, all that stuff, hit you in the guts. Um, I, I personally, I'm not actually that worried about the quality of the sound. I just want, I just want noise. Just want vo- <laughs> I actually just want volume. Can, can we just get you to, while you're watching, just have someone screaming in your ear all the way? Through, it's like just working with you. That's fair, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's fair. <laughs> I can't, I can't argue with that one. I mean, if you go to um, one of the big historic race meetings uh, these days, that's you get a, a reminder of what it used to be like. You see a, you know, um, a Masters F1 race with DFE-powered cars or a, um, a, 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 you know, one of the, the Can-Am races they, they, they hold every now and again. And it's the element of the sport that has seems to have gone forever, as Alonso said in that quote, which is rather sad. Personally, I'm, I'm with Prof. I would love to see them back being properly noisy and... and um, you know, uh, scaring people. Um, there's the sensible uh, side of me thinks maybe uh, maybe times have changed and things have moved on, and that it's it's impossible to go back to that. But um, I think Ross Braun has he's got the toughest job. He's got to find some line to walk between these two um, uh, sort of extremes, really. And he's also got to come up with something that I think car manufacturers are supposed to be interested in because. Uh, whether we like it or not, it seems that man- car manufacturers have to be courted to be part of Formula One. I quite like the idea of an irrelevant Formula One that no longer has to count towards what car manufacturers are looking for. Well, Sean of the need for road relevance and the marketing yeah. demands, yeah. Yeah, um, that that does appeal. Um, um, but does that mean that all the car manufacturers are going to go to Formula E or something else and that Formula One will be left out in the cold and then Formula One will slowly dwindle? That's the, that's the danger, I guess, of being irrelevant. It's a really tough one. I'm not saying there's, a, there's, there's not a straight answer to it, really. I do think that was kind of summed up in the way that it's been expressed what the plan is, because you've got low cost, so that's one element. You've got road relevant, you've got noisy, and all of these things are kind of conflicting with each other. Because if you want to make it genuinely road relevant, you know, marketing budgets for car manufacturers is one thing. If they're spending marketing money and that's all they worry about, all they really want to say is that's a Mercedes, or that's a Ferrari engine winning. But when you're talking about road relevance in technology, presumably you're meaning R&D. And by definition, if you're doing R&D, it's going to cost some money, isn't it? Because you're exploring new areas. So that the worry is, like you say, Ross Braun's got to kind of walk that line. But you kind of end up playing with too many dimensions for them all to have kind of a sweet spot in the middle. 
But this, this comes back to a point that we all talked about before, which is that this is all predicated on the notion that you have to have manufacturers involved in Formula One and that, that the sport has to please manufacturers. And actually, it doesn't at all. It's just the way that we've ended, ended up. And there's actually, in my view, and it's only an opinion, there's far too much money in the sport. There's far too much being spent on it. And the level of complexity and, if you like, artificiality that's in, inside Formula One is actually to its detriment. And we don't, it doesn't have to be like that. It's just the way it is. Well, this is the question, I guess, if you can go back to what you might call more specialised non-manufacturer engine builders. Cosworth, I guess, being the, the ultimate example. Uh, Brian Hart was still having success with his engine in the in the 90s. Gary Anderson, our technical expert, speaks very highly of the work he did, and they had some great results with Jordan in 94. So that's, I guess, what we're pointing towards, isn't it? It's are the manufacturers needed? But then again, of course, it comes down to a financial side. The manufacturers are one of the few organisations that are pouring money still into Formula One. They'll have played a part in the framing of these, well, I'm going to say the framing of these regulations, in the framing of the vague direction. But basically, you can read the objectives any way you want, really, at the moment. It, it's almost, at best, it's sort of a very vague signpost that sort of says, well, over there, it'll be, it'll be something like this. I, I would be surprised if Ross Braun's priority, out of all those things that you've mentioned, isn't the cost bringing the cost down as being, and he, he did mention it in Melbourne. Which they did quite effectively in the V8 era when they froze it and the manufacturers had to agree to do low-price engine deals. It can be done. It can be done, definitely. And we've seen it in other formulas that you can you can produce engines. At, uh, you, don't, you don't have to be a $20 million supply. Um, and also, from an autosport reader point of view, I, I would think the main, the main interest would be to make it more competitive so that an Elmore or a Cosworth can compete against a, a, a car manufacturer it does come down to, to capping costs and whether that's achievable and whether it's actually practical and also this is going to be a test of what liberty media or formula one group as they are now known um really what they want to get out of this sport because if they want it to be a revenue generator the way that cvc did in the, in the past then uh, of course they'll want to attract car manufacturers and massive investment they certainly want to make a profit there's no doubt about that but if they want genuinely want to make an entertaining sport and one that's um opens up competition then car manufacturers aren't the answer it's it's the opposite actually it becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy doesn't it because you talk about the level of investment needed but that's because the cost base is so high you don't i mean these engines are amazing uh and you shouldn't knock them as pieces of technological architecture if you like but they don't need to be that good no. they don't need to be that sophisticated teams don't need a thousand people to run as efficient formula one teams it's just become an arms race and and the fear is that i think this season actually we'll see it even more i think we'll see ferrari and mercedes go absolutely head to head this year yeah and i think i, I shudder to imagine what their true budgets are because we we get pretty close to seeing kind of what their budgets are and it's the thick end of half a billion dollars i bet it's well north of that by the end of this season yeah it's an arms race absolutely yeah. it's yeah. terrifying unless you can control it that's always going to be the case isn't it yes yeah um in the new issue of f1 racing which we're in the middle of finishing at the moment um, standing plug go out and buy it now no, don't buy it now go out and buy it in a few days when it's yeah, actually on the shelves yeah. get the buy the previous issue now yeah. next issue in a few days exactly Perfect. exactly yeah. um i've written a piece about mclaren and their their, their current uh, situation they find themselves in and in melbourne i i sort of tried to it suggests to zach brown that maybe um Britain's version of Ferrari, which is what McLaren essentially is these days, um, you know, could possibly build their own engines to supply to their, you know, to, to their own team and to other teams, as as a you know um, as a Cosworth does and as an Ilmore does or did in the past. Um, he gave it kind of short shrift, but I think I think there's merit in that idea that actually um, a team like McLaren um, 
that builds these fantastic road cars and you know produces engines you know albeit with outside supply help could 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 build racing engines for formula one i think that's actually what a company like mclaren should be aiming for but obviously they'd have to only can do it if it's if it's viable from a financial point of view and they can be competitive and the current engines absolutely no way can't can't happen um, but we've got this opportunity now in uh, um, in 2020 or 21 whenever it is that the engine comes in to actually uh, come up with something that's, that's sustainable that sounds right that um, uh, is powerful enough the relevance thing that's the hard thing i think that's the thing is being relevant to car manufacturers because these these modern engines let's face it from a te- technological point of view how relevant are they i mean it's uh, that's a moot point, isn't it? We're certainly not at the point where things are being bolted off the F1 engine and put onto onto road cars. There's lots of fairly sort of tenuous connections, aren't there? But it's uh, I'm not sure there's that many road car manufacturers who are specifically investing in the in the engines to directly port technology. Maybe a few techniques, a few things, but it's a marketing tool. Formula One, marketing surely. first and foremost. Yeah. On your point about power, um, I had a very interesting chat with Paddy Lowe last week. Uh, for a piece that will go in the next issue of F1 Racing. Um, We got talking about um, the level of sophistication of the current F1 cars and he made the point that the engines are basically more powerful now than anything since the qualifying engines of the mid-80s. So race-spec current Formula 1 engines are the most powerful we've ever had. There's way more downforce on the cars than there has ever been. There's far more technology on them than there has ever been. They're bigger and they're heavier, but they're not actually much faster because of the weight that's involved. They're they're tipping fully fueled with a driver on. They're they're nudging um, the upper end of eight hundred kilos, as, as in nearly nine hundred kilos now, which is not far off an LMP one car. So this idea that Formula One has become an arms race and there's technological overkill, I think is absolutely valid. And I think the sports actually, although these these cars are amazing to watch now, I think the sports just moving in completely the wrong direction. It's everything that Formula One isn't actually. If you think about the sixties and Chapman and adding lightness and simplicity and speed, it's just like this insane overkill now. And it doesn't have to be like that. Actually the weight's an interesting consideration because a big chunk of that is from the engines. There is a little bit from the advanced crash structures and that kind of thing, you know, the, the safety measures do add some weight on, just as they do with regular road cars. But in terms of the visuals of the car, the way the cars behave on track, if you've got a car that's 150 kilos, 200 kilos lighter, it's going to look much more alive and less wallowy straight away. So that's an area where potentially you can you can improve things. You think back to the uh, the, the old days of Grand Prix racing when you had a when you had a weight formula. Uh, can be a uh, you know have a maximum weight formula minimum weight formula there's all sorts of different approaches you can take to try and achieve that within within safety grounds so it'd be interesting to see whether some of these things are created because i always feel that sometimes if you can avoid prescribing lots of things in the regulations if you can try and create something that creates the overall conditions that should lead to the outcome you want then sometimes that's a better path to take than trying to engineer every aspect of it because then the law of unintended consequences just chases you around and you you end up going nowhere which is probably the sort of circle that F1's found itself in at times the good the good news for this year is that the, the cars look good on the circuit and they look they look fast again but um, I must say over the course of the weekend um, your brain kind of gets used to it and it gets less exciting um, the first few moments of Friday practice um, in Melbourne start of a new era um, uh, the, the drivers were trying to find their limits as well and were overcooking it into turn 11 as well and there were sparks flying off the bottom of the cars and that was genuinely exciting proper formula one cars um back as they should be and they look in proportion this year as well which 
definitely helps um over the course of a race distance of course um the 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 um the visual element kind of recedes and, and they're, they're less exciting but then again that was always the case back in back in the day as well so that that's the way it is but genuinely i think they they've managed um from a very ill thought through idea they've they've scrabbled together something that's that's pretty good but you're, there's a there's a step isn't there it's not as big as it could have been but at no. least it's not a retrograde step but Ross Braun recognizes it i think we've all recognized it in our in our magazines and, and our columns on the website um that uh these the, these rules there was no real proper brief and a couple of off the cuff remarks seem to have formed the basis of a rule book which is crazy well a couple of people have made the point that if you actually strip away the suspension and the, and the wings package which are obviously visually very different the fundamentals of the 17 cars are very similar to what we've just had so the, the monocoques are effectively the same that the power units are the same so it's 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 kind of like an aftermarket bolt on fix go faster stripes and <laughs> wide wheels i mean and they do look cool it's very dismissive really i shouldn't be so dismissive and the drivers are enjoying them which is probably the most important thing of all but it's not, it kind of feels a bit kind of Heath Robinson, if you like, that he's been sort of retrofitted F1 rather than this is the way it should be. But that's Ross's challenge now, isn't it? That's what he's set upon himself yeah. to, to take on. I do think there is a point, though, about it being the right direction if the drivers like it. You know, the drivers quite liked the era we had 10, 12 years ago when you could go flat out, refueling, you know, really were sprint races. And yet there were still fan complaints that it was boring because it wasn't really. The brilliance of the drivers wasn't really being conveyed. The passes were being made strategically, etc. So it's it's really difficult because the danger is you you take a situation, you say, well, that's not right, that's not right, that should be that way. Then you change all the things, and then you end up with people saying, well, actually, it should be back to that. You know, how long is it going to be before people say, well, you know, maybe if we had narrower tyres and the cars would move around a bit more, you know, all you sort of get this endless circle of uh, of change. We're, we're currently running this um, fan survey across the motorsport network um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what we pull out from that survey in terms of um, the f- what the fans expect from Formula 1 and what they want from Formula 1. Um, the basis of that doesn't necessarily need to form the, the foundation of the new rules but it should give the organ- you know, the, um, the, uh, Ross Braun and his, his, his group um, the indications and it probably will confirm what they already know because these, these guys know what, they, what Formula 1 should be anyway. The other positive thing that I pulled from Melbourne was that the right man is absolutely in the right job in that in that situation. We, I can't think of anyone better than Ross Braun uh, with the knowledge he has and the experience he has. There was a great moment when he was asked, you know, are you a poacher turned gamekeeper? Which he clearly is. And he just said yes with a big grin on his face. <laughs> you know, he knows he, he knows where, uh, he, how it was all done and back in the... Uh, Back in you know the last twenty years, he knows exactly how it was all done. Uh, all the all the uh, little tricks of the trade. Yes, I was going to say cheats, but that's probably the wrong word. But you know what I mean—the the things that got around um, cutting room floor. Yeah. I, I always <laughs> like to say that you have legal cars, you have illegal cars, and you have not illegal cars. Exactly, which aren't necessarily legal, but not illegal cars will normally be the best ones. But uh, I think but yeah, I think Ross has got a big challenge though on his hands because. Everyone was playing nicely in Melbourne. Nobody wanted to get the season off on a sour note. Um, but Jean Todd had a press conference as well. And one of the points that came out was that it's the FA that writes the sporting and technical regulations for Formula One. And he's just sort of drawing a nice little boundary. You know, the turf war. Absolutely, t- turf warfare. And, and that's been um, going on for a long time, yeah. that battle. And D- Dieter Rankin, who uh, obviously writes for both our titles, um, made a very, very interesting point. Um, I won't attempt to do his South African accent. Um, that's right, he's not very good at it either. <laughs> he, made, he made the point that uh, Jean Todd will always view Ross Bourne as the employee 
and the dynamic in their relationship, at least in John Todd's eyes, will always be that of boss and employee. So let's see that, how that one parlays out over the next uh, year. I always think you need to give your bosses a hard time, though. I'm sure Ross is quite, <laughs> quite, quite capable of doing that, I'm sure. I like the sound of him. But yes, uh, the point Damien makes about the survey, if you head to f1survey.motorsport.com, there's a chance for you to have your say. And, and I would urge anybody who uh, who hasn't yet filled that into head there, it's open it was launched on the the day of the Australian Grand Prix, and it's open for two weeks. So you've got um, another few days. It takes to, us through the Chinese Grand Prix. So it's well worth having your say, and then the answers and the findings will be presented to the people, arguably in a position to uh, to make changes for for the better. It's also worth having a look at head to the Chinese Grand Prix. I think it's not just uh, engine noise and rules. We had a fascinating Australian Grand Prix. There's still this one question: Ferrari or Mercedes? Who is really faster? Obviously, Ferrari had the pace in the race in Australia, but it was Mercedes in qualifying. Did we know enough from that race weekend to decide if that's the pattern or if that's just a one-off because Albert Park's an unusual circuit? For me, it's quite hard to tell. Yep, I'd agree with that. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say the same. I mean, I, I think uh, just looking at Ferrari's pace for a minute, the, the bit that stood out for me was actually that the fact that Seb split the Mercs in qualifying um, and Valtteri was closer to Lewis than Nico had ever been around Albert Park. So Seb's qualifying performance was actually exceptionally strong and the race pace spoke for itself, I think. Um, and I think it's interesting now that Mercedes, um, clearly they're being pushed by Ferrari. They certainly were in Albert Park. And there's a recurrence of an old weakness, which was the uh, rear tyre wear overheating issue, which we haven't seen for three the last three seasons, probably because they've had such an innate performance advantage. They haven't been into that little critical zone. I wonder if now uh, a flaw, a fundamental flaw has been exposed. We, we will see. We'll see it play out. But, um, well, when you've got a big first, advantage that covers a lot of, of vices. Yeah. yeah. And reliability will start coming into it because obviously one of the reasons for Merck's amazing reliability record for the last three years has been uh, they haven't had to push the car to the limit. So Ferrari, I think, will push them to the limit. The interesting question is the, the operating window of the Ferrari, if you like, because obviously the ultimate, ultimate pace, Hamilton had a tiny bit more in the second stint, Bottas on the soft tyre was actually the quickest of them, whereas Vettel was just pretty quick on both. So that maybe suggests that the Ferrari is a is a pretty strong car kind of across the board. So yeah. could, could we see Ferrari sort of being always at that level through the year and then Mercedes maybe having good days and bad days? And then it's just a question of where Australia actually falls on that spectrum. If, that, if Australia was as bad as it gets for Mercedes, they're going to have a pretty good season. But yes. if that's as good as it gets, then Ferrari's going to have an amazing season. That's what we took from testing as well, wasn't it? Pre-season testing, the Ferrari is very consistent. So um, hopefully that's exactly the picture we could end up with, that um, Ferrari is pretty solid everywhere it goes, and, and but, but it's pushing Mercedes to the point where it breaks or um, it's pushed into the, the zone that it hasn't been in for, for a while, and uh, we see some weaknesses. This year's Ferrari is fundamentally, uh, you probably couldn't call it a James Allison car, but James Allison would have had a big input into its design and also his approach exactly and, and this would have been kind there, of, though. yeah and it kind of echoed the lotuses that he did in 12 and 13 which were always super consistent on tire performance and if if we're seeing that from the ferrari then then maybe there is a clear james allison influence in that car and that's the kind of performance we'll see from this year's ferrari but of course if you want to take the negative view of that obviously kimi raikkonen won in australia in 2013 yeah. on tire management and didn't win again I don't think that's going to happen to Ferrari, but it that kind of adds to the idea that Australia is is just a little bit of a, a little bit of an outlier. But, it, but in the early laps, um, Vettel was pushing Hamilton um, just on pure pace. I mean, they were, they were really oh, yeah, going after those first eighteen laps. That was a proper full on race, wasn't it? Yeah, and that was Seb, great to see. Seb, Seb was saying afterwards, "I knew I had to push. I knew I had to keep him 
you know, within a second. I don't think Lewis got more than two seconds away, did he? Yeah. No, and you could tell from certainly from the radio language that Lewis was having uh, with his engineer, he was uncomfortable because yeah. he just he couldn't break him. He couldn't get away and make that gap that he wanted to uh, to, to to get. It was um, it was a proper race, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens. China wise, very different circuit, many more sort of longer corners. It's one step harder on the tyres, so I think it's the super soft, soft and medium have been allocated by Pirelli, whereas we had the ultra soft in Australia. So there's another factor that's changed a little bit. Theoretically, that could help Mercedes a little bit if they're struggling on on the tyre life. But there's all these these factors that are changing that, that just means it, it, it's almost like another first race, isn't it? We don't really know what could happen. The fascinating thing will be is if we could see a scenario where Mercedes has an advantage in qualifying, and by some estimates, they've still got a couple of tenths in their pocket just from the qualifying setting of the of the power unit. Obviously, everyone's got 100% ways of running their engine in, in qualifying, but Mercedes have always seemed to find a little bit more. So you could end up with this scenario where Mercedes often starts with track position, but the Ferrari's a bit stronger. And then if you have one-stop races, Mercedes aren't always going to make strategic errors that open the door quite as invited news in Australia. So there's, there could be a lot of cat and mouse going on here, couldn't there? Yeah, I think so. And and the nice thing as well also is that with the new rules, although um, a, a, a wider picture of form will, will emerge in the next few races, every every race will be an element of un, unknown uh, on these tyres and in this specification. So um, I think there's a lot to look forward to this year. And I guess the one disappointment is still we're not seeing Red, we're not going to see Red Bull up there for a while. There's some Renault I was, I was surprised. upgrades coming in Spain. I was and... surprised actually at how fundamentally off the pace they looked. And you've got to wonder whether this, uh, you know, the, the, the rear suspension asymmetric valve return system um, has actually affected their performance much more than they would admit. Obviously, they, they wouldn't admit it if it had, but you, you've got to wonder when something that significant happens in a team that sort of prides itself on technological sophistication, if you like, and a lot of error trickery and very fine margins in that, that particular aspect of performance. Actually, whether it really has affected them. I mean, one thing, you, you never see... When did you last see Dan, Dan Ricciardo spin off out of control? And you saw that pretty clearly in qualifying, and that surely was because of a chassis imbalance or just he didn't feel comfortable in the car. They, they just looked well out of it. Comfortably third, nowhere near the first two. The rear of that car certainly looked a little bit badly behaved. No watching and testing, there were times when feeding in the power, the rear wasn't really staying in line. It didn't look perfect. The drivers have said it's just not quite there on downforce. So while the Renault power unit package is a clear relative weak point, particularly with the fact they're having to use the previous year's spec MGUK across all the Renault engine cars, and that's likely to be the case till probably Spain when they've got the next uh, the next engine, new batch of engines coming in. But that doesn't mean that I think it's just going to be bolt-in engine upgrade and away they go. There seems to be a, a, a car deficit they need to make up there. Yeah, and we 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 really didn't expect that this year of all years with a, a new rule book and Adrian Newey uh, very much back in harness at Red Bull. So um, it's hard to believe that by mid-season they won't be back in there mixing it with Ferrari and, um, and Mercedes. But yeah, it, it's too late by then, isn't it? It yeah. is too late by then. Too late yeah. for the title. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but um, we just hope that maybe they can mix things up in terms of race results, getting and and um, be an added complication in what hopefully will be a good good title battle between the, the top uh, top two teams. You know they're going to be a factor somewhere. There's Surely, yeah. yeah. There'll be a win yeah, yeah. somewhere around them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Monaco last year, that you know, Dan Ricciardo was amazing. Um, and it all went wrong for him in the end, but, you know, he was absolutely the full man all weekend, wasn't he? I think one of the things we were looking forward to... Um, this year was the, you know Max Verstappen taking on the next step in what's already been an incredible uh, F1 career to, to to this point. Um, but if he hasn't got the car to 
to do that that would be a that would be a significant disappointment for the season uh, again it's hard to believe with red bull that they won't make progress but um uh, we'll have to see what's the kind of expectation in terms of the kind of race we're going to see in shanghai obviously it's a very different type of circuit there's a back straight that's just under 1.2 kilometers long very very different to what you've got in australia so is passing going to be more achievable obviously the drs will be much more effective there in terms of the, how long that straight is and we see a lot of passes into the hairpin whereas we've never really seen that many passes at albert park so if you end up with a, a similar situation let's say it's hamilton leading vettel with the same performance pattern that we saw in the first stint in australia would vettel be in with a better chance of passing on track or do we think it's going to end up still being a, a strategic issue i think it should be better it should be a, there should be a chance for vettel to throw one up the inside into the into the hairpin so uh, I'm optimistic on that point. I mean, I watched the Australian Grand Prix trackside rather than in the press room. And from where I was standing, it, it was not a thrilling Grand Prix in, um, in the sense that the cars were quickly strung out. There were very few on-track battles. Um, so you're essentially watching um, um, a largely reliable bunch of cars circulating um, uh, on their own. Um, and you had... The odd, the odd battle that went on during the race with Ocon and, and Alonso together. But I had a very different perspective to the guys who were analysing the race from, from the media room, watching watching the timing screens. Um, I think China, given the layout of that long straight, it should be better. We've all sort of held back judgment, I think, from, from Albert Park, because that's always been the way with uh, with those Australian Grand Prix. So I think that should be the case again. One thing, the uh, the braking distances are shorter now, aren't they? Um, there's, there's more downforce. Um and more grip as well. So whether the opportunities for passing are just are fundamentally less now, I think we'll sort of get a good indication of that in China. It's hard to predict, but I think it'll be quite a good uh, test case. One, th- one thing that Ross Braun has said about is, is losing DRS at some point, which is something he really hates. But actually, um, while I would share that sentiment, um, you wouldn't want him to lose it now because it's, uh, it's, it's going to be needed. Um, it's our only hope, really, I think, of, um, of overtaking. This is something I've talked about before, so I won't go into it in too much depth, but actually the DRS arguably could come into its own this year in terms of being what it was meant to be, to create contested braking zones. It's obviously on the high deck tyres. If you've got tyres that are past their best, even if you're side by side going into the braking zone, you can't brake as effectively, you can't compete. But it might just be a little bit more balanced now rather than the sort of drive-bys that we were seeing. If it's the right zone length, which obviously might require a little bit of tuning, it, it could actually turn out to be a positive thing which would be uh, remarkable given how uh, how unpopular it is. One team that I don't think we'll see outbreaking anybody is, uh, sadly, McLaren-Honda. I think this is going to really expose the weaknesses of their engine. That that massive straight, I think it could be, we could just see Alonso and Stoffel just chugging away down the back, which is going to be painful, actually. But I think, I can't really see how it's going to be anything other than that. Well, at least they're not going to have to put too much effort into their mirrors and keeping people behind. But it, yeah, it, it, it's looking like that could be a real... Uh, almost back down to earth it's amazing isn't it the fact that in the Australian Grand Prix that Alonso almost clung on for a point turns out to be this this great oh that was quite good feeling for McLaren but I think that was a function of the circuit and Alonso doing a very good job whereas Shanghai you look at it you never know they might they might have some fun with some Salbers but you you just can't see it being anything other than a a really horrible weekend how do we see that panning out i mean you talked about alonzo a lot in the last podcast but i mean it's still an absolutely live issue isn't it whether whether he'll stay there whether it's just combustible whether whether you know a man of that talent can put up with it any longer i mean what do you guys think i don't think he's gonna see the season out 
unless there's a significant improvement. I, I think he'll I think he'll walk before the end of the year. Um, if he can't see a future there, no. What what's the point? You know, I, 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 it, I mean, this is going out on a limb slightly here, but you know, just watching his body language, seeing his face in Melbourne, um, that is a man that is in an utter fury. You know, and and he's he's hiding it behind this sort of bored, um, depressed-looking exterior. I mean, he he did look actually clinically <laughs> depressed at times. Um, and you know, during during press conferences, or just sort of idly looking out the window. Um, you know, he he didn't want to be. Any, he would have preferred to be anywhere other than mm. sit sat there at that moment. Um, he also has a very good way of conveying what he thinks without yeah. necessarily the words he's saying. Yeah, uh, conveying that. So I imagine he'll be adhering to, shall we say, the terms of his contract Absolutely. whilst communicating very emphatically what he thinks. And the message he gave at the end of the race that it was one of the best races he's ever driven. I mean, that was clearly, um, just in case you didn't notice Mercedes and uh, the rest of you, uh, I'm still here and I'm still performing at my peak at the age of 35. You know, it was, it was a, um, he's a very clever uh, guy who never says any, anything by mistake. And I think there was a little bit of a barber on the there as well. You yep. have to say, well, yeah, well, I almost got a point, but only because I'm a miracle worker. Yeah. Exactly. So I think well, it ticked yes. all the boxes. There, there was an element of it's all about me, but you know, actually, <laughs> in his case, I think he can get away with it because it really is all about him. Well, Alonso's not bad, is he? He's a pretty, no. he's a pretty good Grand Prix. Yeah, you yeah. know, we know that in a championship contending car, he'll he'd be able to win the championship. I, I guess that's the real big question for Alonso, and he's probably wondering the same thing. It's where's the opportunity to get into a strong car? He ended up with the McLaren Honda project because a few bridges have been burnt elsewhere. A few other teams are a bit wary of him because of the the way he operates and they already had top-line alternatives on board. So, so where does he go? If, let's say, he's out of McLaren either at the end of the season or before the end of the season, who's he going to be signing with? Red Bull is theoretically locked up for next year and yeah. I don't think they'd be very keen on him. Christian's always Mercedes, no way. Yeah, yeah. Mercedes. Obviously, Bottas could only be a one-year appointment, but they really need Alonso there while they've got Hamilton. Ferrari is <laughs> theoretically possible, but you just can't ever see it happening. The only advantage with Ferrari is that because there's been such a big change there over time, it's possible, but you, the way you look at it, you think, well, is it just going to have to be throw his lot in with the other the other works team, throw his lot in with, with Renault, with Enstone for a third time and then try and win it there. But I guess that's the, the kind of great tragedy of Alonso almost, that he's just not been able to get himself into the right place at the right time. He should have three, four, five world championships, but he just he's further away from it than, than ever the, before. The bit that frustrates me, I don't really actually care how many titles he wins or even how many races he wins, but I just miss not having him in the mix at the front. That's the bit that's sad and annoying. When you think about, I don't know, Valencia in 2012, he was just amazing. And, he, and we're just not seeing that. He's probably driving just as well, but he's doing it for 10th place and 11th place. And it's it, you, you just the sport's weaker for it. We're just missing missing this great thing. Yeah. And, and, it, you, you and know, time's ticking by. He'll know that this can't go on forever. There will be a point where his performance starts to drop off and, and, and trail off. And I think he just he just wants to get back to the front, win some more races, and ideally that third title. But it's it's not clear-cut where he could go. It, you know, it could end up just saying, well, I'm leaving McLaren, but I can't get in anywhere else. So is this a, a kind of Alan Frost year off and just see what happens? Or or, or what? It's a, it's an amazing situation for such a great driver to be in. You, you should think there really should be a battle to get him into the team, but because of the baggage perhaps that he brings and because we're at a time when there's so many very good drivers, if you've got a Vettel or a Hamilton, you don't really need to think about Alonso. You can you can make do with what you've got because Incredible, you've got it? fantastic drivers. Red Bull have got Ricardo Verstappen, Carlos Sainz Jr. waiting in the wings. They hardly need to worry about it, do they? He's in good company. Jim Clark only won 
two world championships you know so uh yeah exactly so uh, you know i i agree absolutely that um a driver's um success in a career shouldn't be judged purely on uh, on on titles and numbers but the reality is that we're we're missing out on a great element to the racing um not having alonso at the front and it's a point that lewis hamilton made over the course of the australian grand prix weekend that i think he misses having him to battle with the team that mclaren is likely to be battling at the back with is sauber Obviously, in Australia, Pascal Verlein dropped out after Friday practice, which let Antonio Giovinazzi into the car, and he did a very decent job, especially given he only had Saturday morning practice before heading into qualifying. And without a little error on his qualifying lap, he could have qualified even more strongly, maybe uh, maybe got out of Q1, which would have been really impressive. We've got the news that Verlein will again be sitting out China. This time, they've taken that decision before the weekend, so Giovinazzi will get Friday. What do we make of all this? Are we looking forward to seeing Giovinazzi get another run? That's not necessarily to be negative about Verline, but we know he's a very good young driver, whereas Giovinazzi is someone who it looked like he might not get an opportunity in F1, but now he's got a chance to continue to show what he can do. Well, he laid down a marker, didn't he? I mean, he, was, he wasn't scared of it. Got straight in, qualified 16th, wasn't it? Um, or was it 17th? One, one off Q2, wasn't it? But um, I, I just think on, on the point of Verline and... Um, and Giovinazzi, I actually take the different view from the very well-argued piece that's in autosport.com that Scott Mitchell wrote. I think Verlein, however weak and shabby he felt, he should have been in that car, he should have driven it. And if I'd been his manager, I said, I don't care how you feel, take some drugs, man up and get in the car and drive because there's now a massive question mark. I think the idea that people will think through, oh, he did the sensible thing is just not Formula One. I think he's made a huge career error. I'd agree with that. Yeah, I think um, as, as well as Scott reasoned his um, his argument um, that um, you know he, he made the sensible decision. This is Formula One, and and perceptions count, as we know, rightly or wrongly, fairly or or not. It's um, the, the question mark is there, and it's going to take him it's going to take him a long time to shake that off. I think, especially in a Sauber. I guess the question mark is what would have happened if. Because we saw he was pretty erratic on the on the Friday, and obviously he's, he's lost the, the kind of prime period of his training. So let's say there'd been a bit more attrition. He was running around in tenth place for a valuable point, and he he was just struggling, and he dropped it. Yeah, but you know we all think back to Nigel Mansell collapsing on the line through heat exhaustion, Nelson Piquet collapsing on the podium. You know we've all got our memories of of these drivers. Uh, you know more, much more recently, Alonso and Trulli. There was that great shot that someone posted last year, wasn't there, from two thousand and six, I think. Uh, Alonso and Trulli just absolutely broken at the end of the race. You know fine if he'd broken what if he'd pushed himself so hard that he had to retire we'd have seen something that we might have doffed our caps to and said well done mate you did everything you could as it as it happened he just took himself out of the game and i think what's that about i guess the key is exactly what the where actually in his were, head etc so i mean i'm a little bit careful about the kind of the phrase you use as a man up idea and you know you've just got to do what you've got to do you could, i think in a lot of other sports where people pull out of things but sometimes footballers come back from injury and they say well they're training fully but they're not up to full fitness because they've been out for four or five weeks everyone else trained properly that's kind of accepted and I wonder whether particularly with the more physical cars whether it's a little bit too easy just to kind of be dismissive and say well obviously you should have done it and the fact that Verline has dropped out of China in advance also suggests that the problem there is fairly serious I don't think we can for one moment think he will have done this lightly this won't have been an offhand move he will be very aware of the criticism but he knows the importance of doing the job right well what he has to do now is destroy Marcus Ericsson for the rest of the season and then and then, and then there's no doubt left I think on the back of um, being overlooked in favour of Bottas for that drive that they weren't willing to put their you know um, take a chance on on a um, 
on a, on a basically a rookie, or well, even not a rookie, but you know, essentially um, in terms of a front running car, very much a rookie. He was already um, there. Were already doubts in people's minds, and I just just think it came at the completely wrong time for his career to to make that decision. Um, and I accept that in other sports, you know, stars put out through injury. But there was a case a few weeks ago, um, a Man United game, Marcus Rashford um, wasn't going to play because he was ill. And they were so short, they actually got him down to London and he did play. Mm. And I said, well, why, if he, if he did play in the, in the end, why, why did he call off in the first place? You know, and those, those sort of question marks, um, sometimes I think sp- sports stars, it's too easy to, to, to pull out in situations like this. And I think, um, I think he will regret that decision. Well, certainly in terms of the boost that's given Giovinazzi, yes, because it's kind of let another driver put a bit of a marker down and actually be in people's minds as someone who's, who's credible. So that that is interesting. Um, I guess the main thing is that perhaps had there been a bit more clarity in the build-up to the weekend after testing, if they raised a few flags, well, we're going to have to assess him after Friday practice. Because you just don't know how kind of on the limit he was pushing it. The team probably made a little bit of an error in testing by not giving Verline more intense running. The longest single run he had in the car was a stint of 12 laps, which wasn't anywhere near where it needed to be. So that was a, a real mistake because they might have picked up this problem earlier and been able to pull Verline out before the weekend, give Giovinazzi the full weekend had they been onto that earlier. In that case, that's a failure of management then, isn't it? Because going into the race weekend, once everything is set, oh, your drivers, if your drivers aren't right, then it doesn't matter how good your car is, you, you, you can't maximise your weekend. So someone at Sauber should have made that call a lot earlier and said, you know what, our guy's not going to be fit for Australia. We'll, we'll sub him in advance. And then it takes all the pressure off Pascal Verlain. You can say he's got a neck injury or whatever, it, whatever the true cause of his non-performance or inability to compete was, and then it, he's not stigmatised. I'd agree with that completely. And that would also let you have Giovinazzi having the Friday as well which potentially could have had an even stronger performance. So, yeah, I think we could uh, we can definitely all agree on that one. The other interesting question is, obviously, we haven't really talked about the midfield. We've jumped from the front to the back. We talked a lot in the last podcast about Williams's performance. I guess the team that slipped a little bit under the radar, in a way, was Haas. Grosjean stuck at six on the grid with one of his mega qualifying laps that we always know he's capable of, but we didn't really get to see Haas find its place in that in that battle. What are we expecting to see in China, I find that impossible to predict from from what we saw from what we saw in Melbourne. I think expert that's, punditry. Thank you. But <laughs> what do you know? I'm being honest. <laughs> I know that you're a fool. Um, Williams themselves think they are clearly fourth, and they're in a better position to analyse it than me. Uh, they think they're nowhere near the top three, but well clear of everybody else. So maybe maybe that's a true indication of where Haas are at. I mean, a quick driver on a hot lap isn't the same as having consistent mid grid pace, is it? But Haas were frequently surprising last year, especially at the start and at the end of the year. They lost their way a bit mid-season. They're a very competent, solid team, and we know the basis of that car is a very good one. And Roman's a driver who could easily win races in the right car. So, you know, there's there's plenty of good stuff there. Again, China will tell us a lot. Yeah, I don't really have much to add to that. I think it's it's way too early to to know from one from one race. Um, it was encouraging to see how how well he was running uh, and how high up he was running and until it uh, all went wrong but um i'd be optimistic to think it was going to be week in week out that kind of performance but uh, let's see i'm going to have to ask people for predictions for china which i know is a fool's errand really but having a look at the the odds for the race lewis hamilton is still favorite just 6 to 5 sebastian vettel 13 to 8 and you've got valtteri bottas 13 to 2 and kimi raikkonen 9 to 1 uh, that, that's how the odds are, are shaking out so it's kind of closed up between mercedes and ferrari 
if you had to put your money on the money on the line, put your week's pay packet on the line, which drive would you be putting it on and why? I'd probably be a little bit boring actually and, and go for Lewis Bottas one two, followed by Vettel and Raikkonen. Um I think um although they were pushed hard and were well and truly rattled and actually were uh, actually beaten fair and square in Melbourne. Um I think in in uh, in China uh, Mercedes will 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 have enough uh, of an edge to um to put the red cars back in their place. I suspect. I hope I'm wrong, but uh, I I suspect it's going to be a Lewis Bottas one too. And Prof or Anthony, should I say? Yes, Edward. Uh I'd go along with that. Um and I'm just thinking back to I think it was 2012 when Nico won his first race for Mercedes in China and he won by a minute basically. So Within that team, there is uh, a deep knowledge of how to absolutely hit the sweet spot around that circuit. And you just kind of think it's it's the sort of very modern Formula One circuit. There's nothing odd about it other than it's got long straights, but it's it's sort of an F1 circuit by numbers. And Mercedes is nothing if not a massively data-driven organization. I think they'll, they'll nail it again. Interesting to see where Bottas is in terms of how close he gets to Lewis this time. Uh, I'd like he- to see him closer. Yeah, I mean, he he was respectable in Australia, but you could see in his face. I think he was a little bit disappointed that he wasn't he wasn't closer. So um, he he needs to step it up, doesn't he? Yeah, definitely, definitely. It was, it was a good solid start, but I don't see him just as a a complete way behind Hamilton number two. I think he's somebody who can be bothering him on occasion. So he needs to be uh, needs to be closer than that. Well, with just a few days to go until the start of practice in Shanghai, it won't be long before we get into the second chapter of the Vettel versus Hamilton rivalry and get a few more answers to our questions. In the meantime, for all the latest news from F1 and the rest of the motorsport world, head to autosport.com. And don't forget to pick up a copy of Autosport magazine, out every Thursday, and F1 racing, out every month. And remember, you can subscribe to this podcast via iTunes and from most other well-known podcast suppliers. From myself, Ed Straw, and my guests, Damien Smith and Anthony Rowlinson, better known as Prof, thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Is this the bit where we talk rubbish and you put it on the extras? Well, (laughs) sometimes people say nonsense (laughs) during the podcast. Sometimes they say it before it. But you really need need Stuart Codling in. Well, we could talk about the Channel Islands for 10 minutes if you want. (laughs) Other holiday (laughs) destinations. And and I can say, yeah. What's your favourite island? Anthropomorphise. (laughs) (laughs) And other such words. I think this is perfect. Conjugation. This is perfect nonsense to put at the end of it.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Most footwear brands use cheaper synthetic materials, but when it comes to quality, Mother Nature knows best. Allbirds took that idea and ran with their iconic wool runners. Wool runners are made with premium supernatural materials that are comfy and durable, so you can run to the ends of the earth or just to the store. Plus, they're machine washable. This year, take a big step forward for Mother Nature with Allbirds Wool Runner. Discover your perfect pair today at allbirds.com. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S.com. Sports Social Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.